<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Welcome to my scientifically informed insider look at mental health topics. If you find this video to be interesting or helpful, please like it and subscribe to my channel. Hello, this is Dr. Grande. Today's question is, what is sexual narcissism? To help answer this question, I'll be using a couple of articles, one from 1999 by Ryabeck and colleagues, and another from 2015 by Casper and colleagues. I'll put the references for these articles in the description for this video. So first, I'm going to start with the construct of narcissism, take a look at the two types of narcissism, move to narcissistic personality disorder, and then talk about how this relates to sexual narcissism. So when we look at the construct of narcissism, we see that it's a personality trait, and it tends to be stable over time. Most of the time, we think of narcissism as normal and adaptive. It's when the levels become too high, they can become problematic. We tend to see that narcissism is also associated with being low on the agreeableness trait in the five-factor model, so being disagreeable. In general, we think that if somebody has high narcissism, they would have characteristics like being grandiose and arrogant. But there are two types of narcissism. One type is grandiose narcissism, sometimes called overt, and the other type is vulnerable narcissism, sometimes called covert narcissism. With grandiose narcissism, we see characteristics like being dominant, having a sense of entitlement, being extroverted, so high on extroversion in the five-factor model. We also see callousness, a sense of superiority, and a tendency to exploit other individuals, sometimes called being manipulative. On the vulnerable side, we see characteristics like being insecure, fearful, being sad, being introverted. This would be low on extroversion in the five-factor model having what's referred to as shame proneness, so tending to experience shame, being hypersensitive, angry, and aggressive. Now, sometimes when we talk about these two types of narcissism, the term narcissistic personality disorder gets mentioned. But narcissistic personality disorder is different than grandiose or vulnerable narcissism. It's more similar to grandiose narcissism, but it's an official diagnosis in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. So somebody could be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. They could not be diagnosed with grandiose or vulnerable narcissism. Those are simply constructs measured on a continuum. Now, narcissistic personality disorder is a cluster B personality disorder. So it's in the same cluster as antisocial, borderline, and histrionic personality disorders. And we believe that sexual narcissism has a close relationship to narcissistic personality disorder and of course, to grandiose narcissism in general. 
So sexual narcissism is a pattern of egocentric sexual interaction. And as I mentioned, it's considered a sexual variant of narcissistic personality disorder. So some of the characteristics we see associated with sexual narcissism would include a preoccupation with sex, placing a lot of importance on sexual activity, having sexual compulsivity, sometimes this is called hypersexuality, having a casual attitude or orientation towards sexual interactions, having a sense of entitlement directly related to sexual activity. So this would be similar, of course, to the sense of entitlement we see with narcissism in general. We also see sexual manipulation. So again, we see a correlate here over to narcissism with the manipulation piece. We see promiscuity, which isn't surprising given the casual orientation towards sexual interactions, and an inflated sense of sexual skill or ability. And this one in particular really seems to stand out in terms of identifying sexual narcissism. If somebody believes that they are better at sex than other individuals. We also see that sexual narcissism is associated with sexual boredom and not surprisingly associated with sexual sensation seeking. So if somebody has sexual boredom, it kind of makes sense that they would have this sensation seeking component as well. We also see that it's associated with pornography use, sexual dissatisfaction, and having an increased number of sexual partners. Sexual narcissism is associated with sexual aggression, having a lack of emotional intimacy, and an increased risk for having extramarital affairs. Now, a lot of times in the research studies, we see that sexual narcissism is measured with one specific instrument. This instrument is called the Index of Sexual Narcissism, and it has 25 items on it. So it's a self-report instrument. We see items on this instrument that are related to believing that somebody doesn't get enough sexual praise from their partner. We see items like endorsing that emotional closeness interferes with sexual pleasure. And this is one of those items in particular, I think, that really connects with sexual narcissism. A lot of people believe that emotional closeness and sexual pleasure have some sort of relationship, and of course that they may be independent, but to believe that emotional closeness interferes with sexual pleasure, I think really points to narcissism a lot more strongly than some of the other example items I'm giving here. We also see items designed to capture that sense of having a special sexual skill like a special style of making love is one of the items. And we see that somebody might be prone to leave a relationship if sex is no longer enjoyable. That's one of the items on this index of sexual narcissism. So looking at these two studies specifically and their results, we see that the 1999 study really tells us a lot of things I already mentioned here in this video. Like it confirmed that individuals who are high on sexual narcissism place a great deal of importance on sex and tend to have an increased number of sexual partners. Now the 2015 study specifically looked at how sexual narcissism was related to internet pornography use. And in terms of the analysis that took place in this study, we see that the data is divided a few different ways. So one way is looking at participants who ever used internet pornography versus those who never used internet pornography. And what we see here with this study is that from the ever used group, these individuals were higher on all measures of narcissism, including sexual narcissism as measured by the index of sexual narcissism. And these results were true for both men and women. So when they looked at men and women separately, we still saw the levels of narcissism higher on all the measures. Another way we see the participants divided up in this study is 
between those who currently used internet pornography during the study and those who did not currently use internet pornography. And what we saw here is the same results. Those who currently used were higher on all of the measures of narcissism, including sexual narcissism. And just like we saw at the other findings, these findings were true for both men and women. So this study offered an examination of one area related to sexual narcissism, but information about this construct can be useful clinically. We know that if somebody reports internet pornography use, we may want to assess for narcissism. And if we assess somebody as being narcissistic, we may want to ask about their internet pornography use history. We also see that research on sexual narcissism in general is useful. Understanding sexual narcissism gives us insight into some of the potential problems associated with narcissism and some of the risks that partners of individuals who are high in narcissism may be exposed to. Narcissism carries painful consequences for people who have the trait, as well as sometimes people who are in relationships with those individuals. So again, understanding this construct is important and offers us value in terms of clinical usefulness. Today's question asks about the construct of sexual homicide offenders and specifically what leads to individuals becoming these types of offenders and is there a difference between single sexual homicide offenders and serial offenders. So there's kind of a lot of nuances here with this topic and I'm going to go through this systematically and try to answer these questions. So the first thing that's important to remember here is that sexual homicide offenders are rare. We see a lot of coverage in the media, but really we have a small sample size to work with when we talk about this topic. We also see that many serial killers would also qualify as being serial sexual homicide offenders, but not all. So what is sexual homicide? So if we're going to talk about these different types of offenders, we have to know what that term means. Well, we see here that there is no universally agreed upon definition of a sexual homicide. But most experts seem to agree that evidence of sexual activity at the crime scene by the perpetrator is required for an offense to qualify as a sexual homicide. And this evidence could occur before the killing, after the killing, or throughout the event. So we also see here that some researchers believe that a sexual homicide can take place even if there's no evidence of sexual activity. That some murders are so brutal that that really acts as a substitute for the sexual act. So this gets into an area that's a little more complex because it really changes the percent of homicides that could qualify as sexual homicide by quite a bit. I would say that, again, most scholars agree that evidence of sexual activity needs to be present. And that's really the definition I'm going to go with here in this video. So using this definition, we see that only 0.2% of all homicides would qualify as a sexual homicide in the United States. We also see that most sexual homicide victims are women, and they tend to be of childbearing age, and the majority of offenders do not kill multiple victims, and therefore do not qualify as serial sexual homicide offenders. So really, we see that only a small proportion of sexual homicide offenders would qualify as serial killers. Now, when we look at this group, sexual homicide offenders, we see that generally they're divided into three categories, although experts disagree on what these categories might be, and some disagree that there are three categories. But in general, we see three categories. 
sexual homicide offenders that are motivated by anger, hate, and revenge. So with this category, we tend to see average intelligence in terms of the offender. We see average intelligence, they tend to be married or in a stable relationship, and they're not socially isolated. The crime scenes are often disorganized with evidence of vengeance displayed to a specific victim available at the crime scene. Now the second type is those that are motivated by a need to satisfy a sadistic sex drive. So this is really, if you look at the Ted Bundy case, which is a very popular case among those who study serial killers, this is where Ted Bundy would likely fit because he tended to be sadistic. We see that individuals in this category are likely to be highly intelligent, although this is disputed. And if we look at the Ted Bundy case, this is really strongly disputed. We also see they tend to be socially isolated and are involved with multiple paraphilias. So, so far we have the anger, hate, and revenge category, and then the sadistic sex drive category. The last category of sexual homicide offender would be those that kill for instrumental reasons. And one of the most common we see is individuals who kill the victim so they can't testify as a witness in the sexual assault. So they commit a sexual assault and then murder the victim in order to try to get away with the crime. So what about the causes? Why does somebody become a sexual homicide offender? Well, as with any criminal of this nature, the causation is very complex. But in general, we know there are some really important risk factors. For example, exposure to violence when somebody's young, victimization when somebody's young, and also in general, adverse childhood experiences, all are actually major risk factors. So these seem to have a causal component to them, but at the very least, we know that there are significant risk factors. We also know that individuals who experience child sexual abuse are much more likely to commit sex offenses later in life. Now this is general sex offenses, not necessarily a sexual homicide, but still it gives us some information as to what might lead to sexual homicides and sexual offending. And when we look at this evidence of child sexual abuse and connect it to sex offending later in life, we see that if somebody does experience that, the odds that they will become a sexual offender increase by about 500%. So it's a fairly significant impact on an individual to be abused when they're young sexually in terms of their probability of offending against somebody else later on. So again, all factors to keep in mind, but we don't really know exactly what causes somebody to commit a sexual homicide. Now in terms of mental health and personality factors, we know that there seems to be a relationship between these constructs and sexual homicide offenders. For example, we see that antisocial personality disorder appears to be the most common diagnosis for sexual homicide offenders. 27 to 81% of these offenders have this diagnosis. We also see there are other personality disorders that are overrepresented. Narcissistic personality disorder, this is characterized by arrogance and a sense of entitlement and having fantasies of success and power. We see borderline personality disorder is fairly common, and this is characterized by an unstable relationship pattern, impulsivity, anger, feeling of emptiness. We see that schizoid personality disorder is overrepresented as well, and this personality disorder is really one that's associated with being kind of a loner, being resistant to praise or criticism, so really a disorder that involves a lot of isolation. The last personality disorder that really appears frequently with sexual homicide offenders is schizotypal personality disorder. 
And this has some elements in common with schizoid personality disorder. They're both cluster A personality disorders. But with schizotypal, we see kind of odd thinking and magical beliefs. So those are the personality disorders that seem to be more closely associated with sexual homicide offending. Now, in terms of paraphilias, it's sexual sadism here that really stands out. It actually is the most common paraphilia among these types of offenders, although it is not uncommon for these offenders to have multiple paraphilias. So with all that kind of general information about sexual homicide offenders, what seems to cause it, what type of personalities we tend to see with these offenders, what do we know about serial versus single? So the differences between individuals who commit multiple sexual homicides and individuals who commit one sexual homicide. Well, we see there are some significant differences between these groups. But again, I talked earlier about how sexual homicides are rare. Serial sexual homicides are exceedingly rare. So we do have trouble when we look at these studies because the sample sizes are extremely small. But still, there are some differences that we can identify. So we see here that serial sexual homicide offenders tend to have offenses that are premeditated. They're also twice as likely to choose victims with distinctive physical or personality characteristics, and they're also about twice as likely to target strangers. We also see that serial sexual homicide offenders are more likely to report deviant sexual fantasies within the 48 hours prior to the offense. So right before their offense, they're thinking about fantasies that involve sexual deviance a lot of the time. We also see a higher percentage of serial offenders verbally humiliated their victim during the offense. So we know from before that sexual homicide offenders are more likely to have narcissistic personality disorder and schizoid personality disorder. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an Evergreen Podcast, Killer Podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in-depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. But again, we see here that serial sex offenders tend to have even more narcissistic and schizoid personality traits and they tend to have more obsessive-compulsive personality traits. So this gets pretty interesting because from this we can kind of create theories about why or how somebody gets involved in this type of offending. One theory is that serial sexual homicide offenders have this tendency toward perfection and attention to detail, and this may allow them to escape apprehension for the first murder, and then of course it gives them an opportunity to commit more murders. So the obsessive compulsive traits may help them get away with murder more often. We also see with the narcissistic traits that one theory could be that 
serial sexual homicide offenders are really fantasy stimulus collectors who seek out experiences to add to their private internal world of fantasy. So they may attempt to produce this fantasy in the real world, but the experience never equals the fantasy, so they continue trying. They continue committing more murders. Another theory, of course, is that this acting out of the fantasy is pleasurable, so they continue to do it for that reason. So it's interesting we combined narcissistic characteristics with obsessive-compulsive traits and, of course, schizoid personality traits. We get this interesting profile, and again, we can create all these different theories about why people offend. We need more research to know if any of these theories is really valid, but still it's an interesting area to explore. Today's question asks about psychopathy and sexual behavior. So what's the relationship between psychopathy and sexual behavior? I've also seen a few questions on the relationship between psychopathy and sexual fantasies. So I'll try to answer both of those questions. So I used a number of articles here for this video. I'll put the references for those articles in the description for this video. So let's first start with the construct of psychopathy. So psychopathy is an interesting construct. It's not a mental disorder. It has a relationship to antisocial personality disorder, which is a cluster B personality disorder in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. But psychopathy is really a set of personality traits. It's, again, a construct, and it's measured on a continuum. So there really isn't an agreed-upon definition of what score somebody would have on some sort of measure of psychopathy for them to be referred to as or considered to be a psychopath. We really don't have that type of clarity. Certainly, if we see extreme behaviors and somebody appears to have all the traits, it would be more likely that we would think of that person as psychopathic. But either way, it's important to remember that it has a subclinical component. So somebody could have psychopathic traits and not qualify for a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder, but also there appears to be a clinical element at the higher expression, the more extreme expression of psychopathy. So there we may see a stronger relationship with antisocial personality disorder. Now, psychopathy also has two different types. So we see factor one and factor two psychopathy, sometimes called primary and secondary. So with factor one, we see a superficial charm. So this is when somebody is charming, but there doesn't appear to be a lot of depth there, a lot of emotion. We see grandiosity, similar to what we see with narcissism. We see somebody who's callous, unemotional. We see pathological lying, manipulation, and also a lack of remorse or lack of guilt. With factor two psychopathy, we see some of the traits that more closely align with antisocial personality disorder, like impulsivity, irresponsibility, and engaging in criminal behavior. So psychopathy isn't really a simple construct. There's a lot to it, and its relationship, again, with mental disorders is not one-to-one. -one. It's not perfectly correlated with mental disorders, like, again, antisocial personality disorder, or for that matter, a disorder like narcissistic personality disorder. Now, we talk about psychopathy and sexual behavior or sexual fantasies. I'm going to start here by discussing the callous, unemotional traits that sometimes we see in adolescence. So, if we look at psychopathy as a construct, somebody can have psychopathic traits at any age. Somebody can only have antisocial personality disorder if they're age 18 or older. When somebody's under 18 and they exhibit a lot of those characteristics, sometimes they get diagnosed with conduct disorder. And there's one particular specifier with conduct disorder 
we see is closely related to psychopathy. And this is limited prosocial emotions. And this is the same thing as the callous unemotional traits. So low levels of guilt, lack of empathy, being callous, and being uncaring. So we just put those characteristics under that specifier, limited prosocial emotions. Now we see here that there are studies that show that male adolescents who have elevated callous unemotional traits are more likely to engage in frequent, violent, and planned sexual offenses. So these traits really have some negative consequences associated with them in the area of sexual behavior. We also see that the callous unemotional traits in adolescents are associated with an increased number of sexual partners, unprotected sex, causing or experiencing pregnancy, and contracting a sexually transmitted infection. So again, just a lot of negative consequences with conduct disorder and that limited prosocial emotions specifier. So if we move over to the idea of sexual fantasy, here we don't see a lot of studies with the callous on emotional traits, but we do see a few studies with psychopathy in adults. And what we know about sexual fantasy is it's actually very common. The vast majority of individuals in the general population have sexual fantasies. And there are some differences with sexual fantasies based on sex. We know that men tend to have more fantasies about multiple partners within a single sexual encounter as compared to women. And we know that women tend to have more fantasies about submission, committed partners, and romantic settings as compared to men. So again, there are some sex differences there to keep in mind with sexual fantasies in general. Now, in talking about psychopathy and sexual fantasies and sexual behavior, we know that varied and uncommitted sexual behavior seems to be really connected to psychopathy. We know that psychopathy has a relationship with more sexual aggression, sexual coercion, sexual deception, and deviant sexual behavior. And when we use the term deviant sexual behavior in research, we're really talking about the paraphilias, like sadism, voyeurism, exhibitionism, those different paraphilias. And specifically with sadism, we see research that shows there's an incredibly strong relationship between sadism and psychopathy. Now, we know that psychopathy is positively associated to a preference for non-romantic sexual fantasies and also sexual fantasies that involve anonymous and uncommitted partners. We see here that participants who reported high levels of fantasizing about these sexual themes were more likely to engage in that behavior if they also reported high levels of psychopathic traits. So here we see a connection between psychopathy and acting out a sexual fantasy. So it's really more than just we see these increased sexual fantasies with people who are psychopathic. There seems to be a relationship where there's a follow-through. So if somebody has high levels of psychopathy, high levels of psychopathic traits, they're more likely to engage in real-life sexual behavior that's consistent with those fantasies. So at first, looking at this finding, some may theorize, well, the psychopathic traits must lead to an increased level of fantasizing, and that fantasizing leads to the acting out in the sexual behavior. So it leads to the actual sexual behavior that lines up with the fantasy. But there are a few different theories that could be at work here. What if an individual has high levels of psychopathic traits, and then they happen to engage in a particular sexual behavior, and because of those psychopathic traits, they're more likely to fantasize about that activity. So all the components would still be there. Somebody would have psychopathic traits, they would be engaging in sexual behavior, 
and there would be a lot of fantasies. So we can't really make any clear determinations here about what behavior or what characteristic causes another. We don't know for sure that psychopathic traits lead to more fantasies and that leads to more behavior. It could be that the behavior and the traits occur at the same time and then the fantasies are just more likely to occur because of those psychopathic traits. Again, these constructs are complex and the relationship to one another is complex. And we really need more studies to try to figure out what comes first, what may lead to another behavior or another characteristic. Now, another area we hear about with psychopathy quite a bit is pornography. And there's different theories with pornography, like individuals who have psychopathic traits are more likely to use pornography, and this leads to different problems. And what we see from this study is psychopathy is related to greater pornography use, but that relationship didn't add to the prediction of real-life sexual behavior. So using or not using pornography didn't have any connection to how often somebody who's psychopathic acted out sexual fantasies or engaged in sexual behavior somewhat consistent with those fantasies. So the role of pornography really isn't clear when it comes to psychopathy. Another theory we hear about psychopathy sometimes is that if a male has psychopathic traits, they're more likely to engage and fantasize sexual behaviors as compared to a female. This study found that that really wasn't the case. They found that the participants' sex did not moderate the relationship between psychopathy and engaging in fantasized sexual behaviors. Moderate there means it didn't change the strength or direction. So if we look at the findings from this study, we see that the sexual behavior of individuals who have psychopathic traits is probably due to a preference for sexual activity that's outside of a committed, loving relationship, as opposed to an inability to form those types of relationships. So we're not really talking about compensating for a deficit here. A lot of times I think that's what people believe about psychopathy. Individuals with psychopathy engage in these different sexual behaviors that have these fantasies because they can't have a romantic, loving, committed type relationship. They can't have a more normative sexual relationship. That's how we usually think of sexual relationships. They involve some sort of degree of commitment, love, and affection. But the reality is that's not what's going on. This isn't, again, about compensation. This is about a preference for a particular type of sexual activity that's more cold and distant. And I think this is an important element in terms of treatment. I've seen over the years in my clinical experience many instances where somebody appears to be in a relationship with somebody who has psychopathic traits. Now remember, from the position of a counselor, we really don't know that unless we were to assess that other person in the relationship, which of course isn't something that would happen. We don't really know if somebody has psychopathy or not. But still, there appear to be traits based on what a client says. And the client believes that if they engage in the sexual fantasies that the psychopath wants, then somehow they'll uncover a caring, loving demeanor underneath of that. Somehow they'll get to the core of that person and they'll find that they're really caring and loving this whole time along. That they just needed those sexual fantasies to get to that romantic point. And that may be true some of the time. Again, we don't really know what the characteristics are of that other person. But a lot of times what I've found is there's not a loving core underneath of those sexual fantasies. So people will come into counseling and they'll 
give in to their partner sometimes for years and nothing really changes. Sometimes actually giving in to the sexual fantasies and allowing them can make things worse. So again, this is really just stressing the importance of seeking counseling and being open to different ideas in terms of insight and looking at characteristics realistically rather than just giving in automatically and just hoping things will work out. Sometimes there's not another level. A lot of times with human behavior and cognition, we want to believe the best with people. We want to believe that the level we're looking at now is one tier, but there's some other level of complexity or lovingness that's unseen. And sometimes, particularly with psychopathy and some other types of traits, sometimes that's just not there. And I think that's really where this finding connects with clinical practice probably more closely than some of the other findings in this study, although they're all fairly interesting findings. Now, it's also important to note here that not all the sexual fantasies are necessarily abusive. Sometimes people engage in these fantasies and both people are satisfied with that. What I'm really talking about here with psychopathy and somebody holding a hope is the abusive type fantasies. They participate in sexual behavior, so they don't really want to participate in again, in hopes that they'll find something else in that person. So that's what I'm really talking about here, not consenting adults that both want to engage in some sort of sexual fantasy that's played out, and they agree to it, and it's what they want to do, and they have good communication about it. I'm not really talking about that with this example. Another element that's important to separate out here is the idea between narcissism and Machiavellianism and psychopathy. These three traits put together are called the dark triad, and the research shows us that the dark triad is associated with deviant sexual fantasies. But psychopathy has a much stronger relationship to deviant sexual fantasies as compared to narcissism or Machiavellianism. So you can't really treat all three of those the same in terms of their impact or in terms of thinking about what potential impact they may have. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.